Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 10 where Paul was reading for us earlier. I've entitled the morning's message, All We Like Sheep. I'll be introducing you to an old friend of mine. Don't know him personally. He wrote a book um, in 1970 called The Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller. Um, I'll be referring to it several times this morning. But as we look at John's gospel, again, in quick way of review, um, reminding you that John's gospel is different. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptic gospels because they're similar. John is completely different in that he chooses to write uh, the life of Christ through seven miracles and seven I am statements. As we look at chapter 10 this morning, Two of the seven I am statements are included in chapter 10. In verse 7, we read, I am the door. And in verse, four, uh, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. So of the seven in John's gospel, two of the I am statements are actually found here in chapter uh, 10. This morning we're going to be looking at four main subjects that will be brought to light in John 10. Um, One I'll sort of begin and end with, and that is the Lord is making it very, very clear that there's no other way that a person can maintain or go to heaven, have eternal life, apart from going through him. That is the reason for the title, I am the door. And then uh, we're going to do a self-examination, a reality check, if you will, (laughs) of uh, characteristics of the sheep. Uh, In case you didn't know it, you're a sheep. (laughs) And I'm a sheep. And of all the animals that the Lord could have chosen to identify human beings with, the, the similarities and the characteristics between a human being and a sheep are very, very similar in many ways, and we'll touch on that, the characteristics of the sheep. Then we're going to notice uh, the characteristics of the Lord himself. And then finally, I'm gonna draw a contrast, because the Lord does, uh, between the good shepherd, and we read in verse 10, the thief. Now, the thief that we're going to be referring to, he has a lot of different names. The willful king, the idle shepherd, the antichrist, the man of perdition, the the people of the prince who will come. He's loaded with titles. But he's all referring to one person in in particular, that's the antichrist. But in context, in verse 10, we're actually talking about the devil. The devil will possess the Antichrist, after he has a fatal head wound. You may not know it, but Zechariah chapter 11 probably gives us pretty graphic details of what happens to him. When we're reading in Revelation chapter 13, we're simply told that the Antichrist is probably assassinated and he has a deadly head wound that was healed. And it sort of leaves it at that. It's sort of like Psalm 22 in the crucifixion. Um, 
the emotional part of the crucifixion isn't given to us in the Gospels, but is clearly laid out in much greater detail in Psalm 22. So likewise, in Zechariah chapter 11, it gets into um, um, what probably happened when they tried to kill, um, well, they did kill the Antichrist, and maybe even why people will seek to identify with him and the marks that they put on his body. Now, all that is just teasing you (laughs) for where we're headed this morning. So drawing a contrast between the good shepherd and um, the idle shepherd or the willful shepherd. So let's go back to the first five verses here. And um, we'll stop at verse five. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens. And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, He goes before them, the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet, they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the stranger. So here he's giving an illustration of who he is and those that are following him. Call them disciples, uh, Christians that were called the way. But here he's referring to... um, the body of Christ as a group of sheep, a flock that know him and follow him. And they know him so well that they can spot a phony a mile away. Somebody that brings another doctrine, another way that you might be able to get to heaven. He calls them thieves and robbers and a person who is a true sheep. A true sheep is somebody who knows the word of God. Good place for an amen. So now you come along and go, I know that voice, that that rings true. That's biblically solid teaching. And then you have other versions or other ways or other religions or other isms, and there's a lot of them. And as soon as you hear one of those, you go, that's off the wall. That doesn't ring true, and I don't want anything to do with it. And that's what basically the Lord is saying here. But in verse Six, it says, Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. So basically, in verses one through five, it's an illustration that he is now going on to explain in verses seven through 14. But I'm gonna get a little sidetracked before we get to seven through 14 um, and talk about the good shepherd. And we're just gonna look at one verse from probably the most famous psalm in the Bible, Psalm 23. So if you make your way back to um, Psalm 23, we're just going to look at one verse and um, look at uh, verse 1 where it says, The Lord is my shepherd. Verse one, and we'll stop right there. And that's part A, we'll come back to part B. 
Now, I want to introduce you, this is a classic, and it came out in 1970, but I want to introduce you to, to this man. He's not only a sheep herder, but he's been a scientist, he's, been, he's worked in many fields, um, <laughs> literally in many fields. <laughs> um, and I just want to give you a little background, I'm going to read a paragraph um, telling a little bit about his background. His name is Philip Keller. And it's called The Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. This book has been developed against a rather unique background, which has perhaps given me a deeper appreciation than most men of what David had in mind when he wrote his beautiful poem. First of all, I grew up and lived in East Africa, surrounded by simple native herders whose customs closely resembled those to their counterparts in the Middle East. So, I am intimately acquainted with the romance, uh, the picturesque life of an Eastern shepherd. Secondly, as a young man, I actually made my own livelihood for about eight years as a sheep owner and a sheep rancher. Consequently, I write as one who has a first-hand experience with every phase of sheep management. Later, as the lay pastor of a community church, I shared the truth of this psalm as a shepherd with my flock every Sunday for several months. It is therefore out of the variety of this first-hand experience with sheep that the following chapters have emerged. To my knowledge, this is the first time that a down-to-earth, hard-handed sheep man has ever written at length about the shepherd's psalm. So that's a little introduction to um, what I'm going to be referred to this morning. I don't know if you can still get these or not. You might be able to find one on Amazon or some place like that. As far as I know, it's out of print. Like I said, um, he wrote much of this during the Depression. Uh, this was written personally in 1970 by him. So with that much of an introduction, he takes the first verse here and um, he says the Lord is my shepherd and he takes this one verse and comments this way about um, the contentment that should really come when we have the good shepherd as the one who is overseeing the flock so again I'm quoting from Philip Keller here, and um, he says, Jesus, about this good shepherd, Jesus was the most balanced and perhaps the most beloved being ever to have entered the society of men. I guess that's an understatement. (laughs) Though born amidst the most uh, disgusting surroundings, Uh, The member of a modest working family, he bore himself always with great dignity and assurance. Though he enjoyed no special advantages as a child, either in education or employment, his entire philosophy and outlook on life was the highest standard of human conduct ever set before mankind. Though he had no vast economic assets, political power, or military might, No other person 
ever made such an enormous impact in world history. Because of him, millions of people across 20 centuries of time have come into a life of decency and honor and noble conduct. No one was as gentle and as tender and true and also righteous, but at the same time, he was also stern as steel and terribly tough on phony people. He was referring to the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He cut them no slack whatsoever. Read Matthew 23 if you're taking notes. Uh, He was magnificent in his magnanimous spirit of forgiveness for fallen folks, but a terror to those who indulged in double talk or false pretense. He came to set men free from their own sins, their own selves, their own fears. Uh, Those so liberated loved him fiercely. It is this one who insists that he was the good shepherd, the understanding shepherd, the concerned shepherd who cares enough to seek out and save and restore lost men and women. And then we sort of have, a, I was looking for this picture of defending this morning. Guys, get ready for that one shot of, uh, as we sort of look at this part of the study, his nature, the nature of our creator, the one we call the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, as we go through John, we've been noticing that he's always looking for the one with the greatest need. Remember when he had to go through Samaria? Jews don't go through Samaria. He said, but we have to go through Samaria. Why? Because there was a woman there. Oh, she'd been married five times, given up in marriage. Now she was just shacking up with some guy. But she was broken. And he said, we must go through Samaria. Why? For one person. And that's what the Lord is always looking after. I got this picture at my home. I got you guys put it up. It's a picture of the Lord reaching down And you guys have all seen this picture. Of course, the thief is in the air being ready just to steal, kill, and destroy. But the Lord is reaching down and um, knowing that this lamb is in a lot of trouble, uh, reaching down to find him. I read in Matthew um, chapter 11, 29, if you're taking notes more about Um, the nature of Jesus, where he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So as I think of Jesus and I think of some of the modern day uh, charismatic, we we ran into some real charismatic ones in (laughs) in Israel. And I'm sitting there watching these guys and how they're, um, supposedly representing the Lord. Completely out of control. Um, Bible says that all things are to be done decently and in order. Good place for an amen. I, in my wildest dreams, I can't imagine the Lord putting on a show like that. He says, no, you come and learn all about me. What am I like? Well, first of all, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And after listening to him, there's this calmness and um, the response of the woman at the well, come and, come and 
learn of this man that told me things that no man could ever tell me. And so moved to the point of now having to share because of the way that the Lord ministered to this woman who was in dire straits at the time. John 15, verse 13, we'll get there eventually. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Love. The Bible says that God is three things. God is spirit, God is light, and God is love. Now if I would ask you, if, is there a chapter in the Bible that just talks about love? We'd all say what? Somebody better say something. <laughs> We'd say, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So why don't we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? This is going to be, let me warn you ahead of time, convicting. Because beginning with verse 4, if I would ask you to put your name in there instead of Jesus' name, you can't get very far and it gets uncomfortable really quick. So just put your name where it says love in verse 4. Put your name in there and then after that suffers long and is kind. And already we're uncomfortable, okay? But let's see how it fits when we're talking about the nature of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 13 describes his nature for us because God is love, and this is a definition of love. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. Jesus is not puffed up. He does not behave rudely. He does not seek his own. He is not provoked and he thinks no evil. He's the only person I could ever, ever say that. He was without sin. Jesus does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes in all things, hopes all things, endures all things, it says, enduring the cross, but despising the shame. For the joy that went before him, he endured that, knowing it was the only way, the only door, and he had to follow through with it. But he said he endured it. Jesus never fails, verse eight. Good place for an amen. Now, we might think he fails. We might think he's not on the job. Or we might think he hasn't sent the guardian angel to look out for us. No, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that these trials are absolutely necessary in life to test us. Like he did Abraham. Abraham, take now your son, your only son whom you love. I want you to take him to the mountains of Moriah. And I want you to offer him there as a, as a, as a sacrifice unto me. Now, we know because of Hebrews chapter 10 that uh, it says, by faith, Abraham did this knowing that the Lord would raise him if necessary. But nonetheless, think of it. Take now your son, your only son whom you love. Boy, what does that sound like? John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever soever believes in him shall should not perish but have everlasting life. So a definition as we look at the nature of Jesus, 
Psalm 145, verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious, he's full of compassion, slow to anger, great in mercy. So the first part of uh, the Lord is my shepherd is um, the idea of his nature and his character and his care that he has for the, for the sheep. Now, the, the re, because that's his nature, now we can look at the second part of verse one, and you can uh, turn back to it if you want to. It's just uh, Psalm 23, verse B, B. I shall not want. Because the Lord's nature is that good and that caring for us that I should find a peace and a contentment knowing that those are all his thoughts and attributes and characteristics of the God we love and serve. And why anybody would turn away from that is beyond my understanding. Once they really understand. He reveals his nature through the book that we're reading and by his Holy Spirit. But you can only come to an awareness of his Holy Spirit by reading his book. Good place for an amen. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you're not going to get it. You must be born again. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. I got something in the back of my head that just popped in, and I'm going to let it go. Sometimes it gets me in trouble. Sometimes it doesn't. Okay, let's talk about the reality of this week. This week, many of you are going to get together for Thanksgiving dinner. And what you're going to come in contact with is some of you are going to be born-again believers. Other parts of the family are already upset with you because you are born-again believers. And you have to get together. (laughs) And you struggle with, well, we're going to pray or maybe we shouldn't pray. We're going to offend them. Maybe we shouldn't do it. And you're in this environment. David Wilcock wrote a great song about um, having to get together for Thanksgiving. You wouldn't do it ordinarily. Why? Because you become, uh, Paul was talking about this in men's prayer yesterday. We'll have 60, 80 people show up here on on Thanksgiving. You're invited. And um, the reason that you do so is because we're more your family than some of you in your own family who are not born again. Well, Dwight, what's your point here? Well, Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Nick, you're not going to get it until you're born again. And he witnesses to him, well, I don't get this. How can a man be born again when he's old? Uh, Does he come out of his mother's womb? What does the Bible say about the man who's not born again? The natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit because they are spiritually undiscerning. The only way you can understand the things of the Spirit is when the Holy Spirit comes in you and you go, oh, oh, I get it. But before that happens, the same is no different than the house that Jesus grew up in. Can you imagine being the Lord growing up and only Mary and Joseph believe? None of his brothers or sisters did until after the resurrection. Then they believed in him. So if it was true, Jesus said a prophet is not without honor, how much more so you when you go home to your Thanksgiving dinner and some of you are born again and, of course, 
You want them to have what you have. And they're sitting with the attitude of, let's not bring politics and religion up for Thanksgiving. Aren't those the two rules? (laughs) We just want to enjoy Thanksgiving and watch the ball game. Is that okay? (laughs) And um, so that's all extra credit. I mean, that's not my notes here. But you're you're, going to be dealing with it, and I would ask God to give you wisdom. Lord, how can we represent you? Do we come off like some of these wackos that we see on TV or people jumping all over the stage and, and we think, why would an average common sense person want anything to do with that? I don't want to be like that. I want to be the guy who says I'm gentle and lowly of spirit and you'll find rest for your souls. Do you know that our society is so full of unrest and instability that they have none of that? And sometimes, unfortunately, we take it for granted that we can wake up in the morning and we know who to thank for these two beautiful sunsets that have come up the last couple days. And um, um, we're creatures that are created to worship. Oh, you will worship someone or something. Well, do until we come to the only one that really, truly is worthy of our worship. All right, Um, let's go back to I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, and if he is, then there's a contentment that shall come with it. And David says, therefore, because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Again, I'm gonna go to uh, Keller's book here, And he's got this great story of a neighbor that he has um, on contentment. He says, a contentment should be the hallmark of the man or woman who has put his or her affairs in the hands of God. This especially applies in our fluent age. But the outstanding paradox is the intense fever of discontentment among people who are ever speaking of security. Despite an unparalleled wealth of material assets, we are outstandingly insecure, unsure of ourselves, well-nigh bankrupt in spiritual values. Always men are searching for safety beyond themselves. They're restless, unsettled, covetous, they're greedy for more, uh, wanting this and that, yet never satisfied in spirit. But by contrast, the simple Christian, the humble person, the shepherd sheep can stand up proudly and boast, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm not good at what. I'm a happy man, and I'm satisfied. I am completely satisfied with his management of my life. Why? Because he's the sheepman to whom no trouble is too great as he cares for his flock. He is a rancher who is outstanding because his fondness for the sheep, who loves them for their own sake as well as his personal pleasure in them. He will, if necessary, be on the job 24 hours a day to see that they are all properly provided for in every detail. Above all, he's very jealous of his name and high reputation as the good shepherd. He is the owner who delights in his flock, For him, there is no greater reward, no greater satisfaction than that of seeing his sheep contented, well-fed, and flourishing 
in his care. This is indeed his very nature, as we talk about his nature. He gives all he has to it. He literally lays himself out for those that are his. The Lord is my shepherd. Because he's good, I'm content. And uh, let's go back to um, the Gospel of John as we look at the nature of our Lord, his characteristics. Remember we read the first five verses. They didn't get it. And he said he's using it as an illustration. They did not understand the things he spoke to them. Now in verses um, 10 onward, uh, the Lord tells us that Jesus is not only the good shepherd, but he goes on to warn us of false shepherds. They not only don't care for the sheep, but in contrast, as, as we read 7 through 10 here, he says, I am the door of the sheep. All whoever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters in by me, he will be saved and go hand in and out, and he'll find pasture or satisfaction. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And now we have the contrast. We have the good shepherd who wants to work everything out together for our good. On the other side of that coin is our adversary. The thief here is clearly a reference to our adversary, the devil. He's going to be tied into the Old Testament um, as far as one who has no care whatsoever for the sheep, both in um, three books of, of the Old Testament. They not only don't care for the sheep, but he refers to them as someone who purposely neglects them. Now again, Philip Keller had a neighbor, and he describes his neighbor in his book, and it's just a couple paragraphs, so I want to read, read that too. And so he comments on his neighbor by saying, in memory I can still see one of the sheep ranchers in our district, which was operated by a tenant shepherd. He ought never to have been allowed to keep sheep. His stock were always thin, weak, riddled with disease and parasites. Again and again they would come and stand at the fence staring blankly through the woven wire at the green, lush pastures which my flocks enjoyed. Had they been able to speak, I am sure they would have said, oh, to be set free from this awful owner. This is a picture which has never left my memory. It is a picture of a pathetic people of the world who over, who over, who have not known what it's like to belong to the good shepherd. Who, stuff, who suffer instead under sin and Satan. How amazing it is that individual men and women vehemently refuse and reject the claims of Christ on their lives. They fear that to acknowledge his ownership, to come under the rule, it would be under the rule of a tyrant. This is difficult to comprehend. When one pauses to consider the characteristics, which we just did, of Christ, Admittedly, there have been many false character, 
caricatures of this person, but unbiased look at his life quickly reveals an individual of enormous compassion and incredible integrity. And yet most of the world is not satisfied. Whatever they're pursuing, if they'd be honest, isn't bringing them contentment. Ask any millionaire, how much is enough? What's the answer? Just a little bit more. It never brings a person contentment or satisfaction. Just the opposite, the striving to gain just for a little bit more. Jesus said the thief, uh, Jesus is referring to in John 10.10 is Satan, but he's also a future reference to the Antichrist. And so I'd like you to turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 8. And of course, Daniel is of... um, a book that critics of the Bible have a great problem with because Daniel lays out the world-conquering empires that have ever existed, and he did so except for Babylon, where this was written. And he nails it so well that the critics said it had to be written after the fact in order for him to get it so right. He talks about the Babylonian Um, empire. He talked about the Medes and the Persians, which would come after them. Then he talked about Alexander the Great in great detail, his four generals. And then with that, in chapter 8, talking about Alexander the Great, um, he becomes very great. And when he had become strong, the large horn was broken and in its place, four notable ones came towards the four winds of heaven. It's a reference to Alexander the Great's generals that he gave his empire to. Then it says in verse nine, and out of one of them, out of one of what? Out of one of Alexander's four generals there grows this little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as a prince of hosts, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and in the place a sanctuary was set up. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifice and cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Probably a reference to Antioch Epiphanes or the Antichrist. But now we have the interpretation of what we just read in Daniel 8 in verses 23 through 25. And we jump ahead. Notice this. There's a connection between Antioch Epiphanes and the latter time. So we have a gap. And we find in verse 23, and in the latter times of their kingdom, when the transgression has reached its fullness, a king shall arise. Having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Now when we read about the assassination of the Antichrist and he's killed, we're told that it was Uh, the devil that gave him his strength and power and authority. So when we read here, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. 
It's a reference to the Antichrist getting his power and demon possession by Satan himself. He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. That's Revelation 12, if you're taking notes. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity and even rise against the prince of princes. The prince of princes is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But, I love this, but he shall be broken without hands. How is the Antichrist defeated? The Bible says in Revelation 19 that a sword comes out of the Lord's mouth. And they capture the beast and the false prophet and um, immediately cast them uh, into the lake of fire. He's broken, but not with hands. And now turn to um, Daniel chapter 11, which is just a couple pages away. Most of this is a recount of the ruler of Persia, the ruler of Greece, and it sort of gives a chronology. Antioch Epiphanes is ministered here. But then, between verses 35 and 36, how many times have I pointed out you can be reading along and all of a sudden you're going to have a gap of sometimes thousands of years. This is one of those places. And this one here is a reference to the Antichrist, but he has a different title. What was his title in Daniel chapter 8? The Little Horn. And um, the title here is The Willful King. Now, if you have the old King James, it's going to say The Idle Shepherd. So verse 36, then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. In other words, there's a period of time of God's wrath that has to be accomplished. Um, I don't have time to get into all this, but of course we're referring to Daniel's 70th week. God owes Israel seven years. We call it by different names. We call it the tribulation. We call it Daniel's 70th week. We call it the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus calls it a time that has never been nor will ever be. And so that's what's referring to here. Um, shall prosper in wrath. So John uh, Revelation 1, I believe it's verse 16 says, for the wrath of the Lamb has come. And it shall be accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. In other words, nothing's going to change this from happening. He's going to meet his end. One more. That's in Zechariah. Zechariah is right before the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 11. The first part of this is the rejection of the true Messiah. It's actually um, where we get the the phrase that's actually a prophecy fulfilled. If you look at verse 12, it's referring to Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus. Then I said, if it's agreeable to you, they give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they wait out for my wages 30 
pieces of silver. This is a prophecy. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That's exactly what they did because it was blood money. They couldn't keep it after Judas turned it back in. The price lay price that they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw, threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. That's exactly what Judas Iscariot did. Now, he's the good shepherd that was betrayed. But now look, and um, he says in verse 15, he is gonna draw a contrast. Zechariah is. Now this is the good shepherd. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. But in verse 15, he switches gear and he talks about the one that John is referring to, the thief in John chapter 10, verse 10. And the Lord said to me, next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that are still a stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and uh, tear their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd or idle shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall be completely withered and his right eye shall be totally blinded. All right, this is Dwight's opinion. This is not, thus saith the Lord. Okay, is everybody with me? But my personal conviction is the details of the assassination in Revelation 13, it just says that he has a deadly head wound. And it was deadly. And then he has a resurrection, whether it's real or, or fake, we don't know. But I personally feel that the um, whatever causes this man to die, I believe could be the details here, I have no doubt that it's referring to the Antichrist. And um, he's called the worthless shepherd. He's only concerned for himself. Um, He destroys Rome. There will be a one world religion that will last for a short period of time. He doesn't like the competition. It's gotta go. So what does he do to Rome? Blows it up. No more Rome. Only person that's gonna be worshiped on this planet is me. It's a picture of Nebuchadnezzar who set up the golden image. Anybody who doesn't worship him, what happens? Put to death. Same thing here. And so um, take it for what it's worth about the attacks and um, how that may be what kills the Antichrist who is then brought back to life and possessed by the Antichrist. All right, Jesus said this. I have come in my Father's name. This is also, we studied this a couple weeks ago in John 5. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. I believe he's speaking of this future Antichrist that the world is going to accept. And it says in Revelation, all the world worshiped the beast. So we have world worship taking place here. They rejected Jesus, the good shepherd, and they accept the worthless shepherd here. All right, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. 
Now let's talk a little bit about ourselves. We've talked about the nature of our Lord. We've talked about the contrast between the good shepherd and the worthless shepherd. Let's talk a little bit about us as sheep and what the prophet um, Isaiah has to say about us. That's where I got the title for the morning's message. Isaiah 53, verses six and seven. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is a reference to Jesus. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Notice the animal he chooses to identify with. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears, he's silent. So he opened not his mouth. What does the Bible have to say about sheep? About Christians? Well, Isaiah says here, oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. I couldn't help but think of the song this morning, so I actually Googled it and looked it up. Uh, Come Thou Fount. Everybody knows the song, right? Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing to My Heart to Sing Thy Praise. Written by Robert Robinson, if I remember right. He grew up um, in the 1750s, and his dad died young, and he was sort of a roughneck. George... um, was evangelist back then, it's not coming to my mind. Long story short, he gets saved, okay? And he's on fire for the Lord. And even had a church one time of over a thousand people. And he's, the reason he came to mind is this one verse in a song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I was looking for a particular story that I heard years ago, and once you know that I found it. He was now older, discouraged, thinking about leaving everything. And he's in a carriage, and he's with this other woman. There's just the two of them. She's picking up on his body language that this guy's going through the ringer. And so she thought she would cheer him up. Come thou fount of every blessing. Remember, he wrote the song. Tune thy heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Calls for songs of loudest praise. Then what? Prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. That's what Isaiah is saying here. That the nature in our character is this tendency to prone to wander. So what is his prayer? Lord, I know my heart is prone to wander. That's what sheep do. But here's my heart. Would you take it and would you seal it up? (laughs) And uh, so that I don't wander from you. You know the great thing about teaching through the whole Bible? It tells us the whole truth about ourselves. Well, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be following the Lord the rest of my life. No, unless you die daily, you're going to prone to wander. And sometimes you can just just get a little bit too far and it's hard finding your way back. Now, my favorite story in Philip Keller's book is a story he tells about one particular sheep called Miss Gadabout. Now, how is that a name for a sheep? Miss Gadabout. 
So I can't resist this. This will be the last one I, uh, stories that I'll, I'll share about this one. But he actually had a sheep that he called uh, Miss Gadabout who had this tendency uh, to prone to wander. He says, in spite of having such a master and an owner, the fact remains that some Christians are still not content with his control. They're somewhat dissatisfied. Always feeling that somehow the grass beyond the fence is just a little bit greener, these are carnal Christians. One might almost call them fence crawlers or half-Christians who want the best of both worlds. I once owned a you whose conduct exactly typified this sort of person. She was one of the most attractive sheep that ever belonged to me. Her body was beautifully proportioned. She had a strong constitution and an excellent coat of wool. Her head was clean, alert, well-set, bright eyes. She bore sturdy lambs and matured rapidly. But in spite of all these attractive attributes, she had one pronounced fault. She was restless, discontent, a fence crawler. So much so that I began to call her Miss Gadabout. This one you produced more problems for me than almost all the rest of the flock combined. No matter what field or pasture the sheep were in, she would search all along the fence or shoreline, in parentheses, we live by the sea, looking for a loophole she could crawl through and start to feed on the other side. It was not that she lacked pasture. My fields were my joy and delight. No sheep in the district had better grazing. With Miss Gadabout, it was an ingrained habit. She was simply never content with things as they were. Often she had forced her way through some spot in the fence or found a way around the end of the wire at low tide on the beaches. She would end up feeding on bare, brown, burned-up passage of a most inferior sort. But she never learned her lesson, and she continued to fence crawl time after time. Now, it would have been bad enough if she was the only one who did this. It was a a sufficient problem to find her and bring her back. But the further point was that she taught her lambs the same tricks. They simply followed her example, and soon were as skilled as escaping as their mother. Even worse... However, was the example that she set for the entire flock. In a short time, she began to lead others through the same holes, around the same dangerous pass down by the sea. And after putting up with her uh, perseverance for a summer, I finally came to the conclusion to save the rest of the flock from becoming unsettled, she'd have to go. I could not allow one obstinate, disconnect you to ruin the whole ranch operation. It was a difficult decision to make, for I loved her in the same way I loved the rest. Her strength and beauty and alertness were a delight to the eye. But one morning, I took the killing knife in hand, and I butchered her. Her career of fence crawling was over. It was the only solution for the dilemma. She was a sheep who, in despite of what I had done, to give her the very best care, still wanted something else. She was like the one who said, the Lord, um, she's not like, 
the one who said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a solemn warning to carnal Christians, backsliders, half Christians, the one who wants the best of both worlds. Sometimes in short order, they can be cut down. As we begin to wrap this up this morning, not only should we not set an example of being misgadabouts, but on the contrary, be an example of who we are supposed to emulate. Who are we supposed to emulate? The Lord himself. So showing that contentment, why? Because people are always watching you. They're gonna be watching you over the Thanksgiving (laughs) table in a couple of days and uh, watching closely. Be an example of the good shepherd. So we read, um, instead of setting that example of being discontent and looking for greener grass, being an example, let's go back and finish John 10. I said we would read um, the rest of the chapter, picking it up in verse 11. Who are we to emulate? Verse 11 through 14 I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he who is a hireling and not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and he doesn't care about the sheep at all. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And I am known by my own. If the most important thing for the Lord is to care for the flock, and we say that we read in the Bible, by this we know, because he laid down his life for us, now we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. No greater love is this. So if he did that for us, we're supposed to be doing that for others. So in the last chapter, if you're taking notes, I'll just... um, get to the the heart of the matter. And it's about love and if you really love the Lord. This is what he said to Peter. Peter, do you really love me? Do you really love me? Three times he asked him that question. And Peter acknowledged, you know, the verses. And what does the Lord say? Okay, Peter, because you do love me, what does he ask him to do? Feed my sheep. The best thing that will bring satisfaction, my friends, is the book that you're holding in your hand. Nothing compares to um, a man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from this book. This is the green pasture. It's given to us by our good shepherd. The Bible says that God holds his word above his own name. And it's only by the feeding on this book, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes how? It's the only way you're going to grow in faith. There's no shortcuts. Baby Christians want to be mature Christians overnight. Uh Uh-uh. Ain't going to happen. Years of of, uh, being in that place of continually just feeding on this. Now, you know me well enough to know I don't believe in coincidences. So I'm reading my wisdom for today this morning. I thought, well, this is sure interesting. It's called our anchor. I'll close with this. 
he's quoting Hebrews 6. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the, the presence behind the veil. And then Chuck comments on it. Unless you are moored to something solid, it's very easy to drift away. Another way of saying prone to wander. You may not notice any movement at first, but over time the slow drift can take you far away. You wake up one morning and are shocked to see just how far you've gone. As the psalmist said, he brought me out of a horrible pit out of the miry clay and he set my feet upon the rock. In these changing times, we need to be anchored to the unchanging Christ. After describing the anchor of our soul, which is the hope of Christ's return, the author of Hebrews mentions the presence behind the veil. Now the veil refers to the thick separation between the holy place and the temple and the holy of holies, the most holy place. Now before Jesus, no one but the high priest could enter the holy place where God's presence dwelt. But when Jesus was crucified, it is recorded that the veil of the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom. That is the only way the separation could be breached from top, heaven, to bottom, earth. God is issuing an invitation in that breach. And then he uses these words. The door is open. One of the seven I am statements. The door is open. What did Jesus say? I am the door to the sheepfold. And I'm reading this this morning and I'm going, you gotta be kidding me. November 23rd, drifting away and the only way to have security is to go through the door. Yeah, the door is now open. And because of his sacrifice of his son, you can have access to God at any time. You don't need to go through a priest. You don't need to have transubstantiation, sins, Uh, confessed before a priest. None of that is biblical. The whole idea is now we're to come boldly because the veil's been ripped away and every one of us here can go through the door and have direct access as it says there's one mediator between God and man and that is the man Christ Jesus. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This tells me here, as we close this, that there's only one door. Is that what we're reading in John 10? What about everybody else? All other religions. Oh, they're thieves. They're robbers. There's only one good shepherd who has a motive to lay down his life. He's the good shepherd on one hand, but he's also the only door that leads to heaven. And so, around the Thanksgiving table, you guys are so narrow-minded, you always say, Jesus is the only way. You still don't really believe that. And then you get to say, yep, now more than ever before. (laughs) Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And as we make our way through, John, we do hold up the following week. Pray for the guys that are out uh, tracking the trails, looking for their deer and buck. Keep them safe, Lord, and give them some great R&R time. We thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your nature. 
We thank you that you warn us against the false prophets that are there. And um, thank you, Lord. Help us be that person that correctly represents you before people. In Jesus' name, amen. Steadfast, and which enters the, the presence behind the veil. Then Chuck comments on it. Unless you are moored to something solid, it's very easy to drift away. Another way of saying prone to wander. You may not notice any movement at first, but over time the slow drift can take you far away. You wake up one morning and are shocked to see just how far you've gone. As the psalmist said, he brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon the rock. In these changing times, we need to be anchored to the unchanging Christ. After describing the anchor of our soul, which is the hope of Christ's return, the author of Hebrews mentions the presence behind the veil. Now, the veil refers to the thick separation between the holy place and the temple and the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. Now before Jesus, no one but the high priest could enter the holy place where God's presence dwelt. But when Jesus was crucified, it is recorded that the veil of the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom. That is the only way the separation could be breached from top, heaven, to bottom, earth. God is issuing an invitation in that breach. And then he uses these words. The door is open. One of the seven I am statements. The door is open. What did Jesus say? I am the door to the sheepfold. And I'm reading this this morning and I'm going, you gotta be kidding me. November 23rd, drifting away, and the only way to have security is to go through the door. Yeah, the door is now open. And because of his sacrifice of his son, you can have access to God at any time. You don't need to go through a priest. You don't need to have a, a transubstantiation, sins uh, confessed before a priest. None of that is biblical. The whole idea is now we're to come boldly because the veil's been ripped away and every one of us here can go through the door and have direct access as it says there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This tells me here, as we close this, that there's only one door. Is that what we're reading in John 10? What about everybody else? All other religions, oh, they're thieves. They're robbers. There's only one good shepherd who has a motive to lay down his life. He's the good shepherd on one hand, but he's also the only door that leads to heaven. And so, around the Thanksgiving table, you guys are so narrow-minded, you always say, Jesus is the only way. You still don't really believe that. And then you get to say, yep, now more than ever before. (laughs) Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And as we make our way through, John, we do hold up the following week. Pray for the guys that are out uh, tracking the trails looking for their deer and buck. 
Keep them safe, Lord. Give them some great R&R time. We thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your nature. We thank you that you warn us against the false prophets that are there. And um, thank you, Lord. Help us be that person that correctly represents you before people. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.